Alright, before we get into this episode, um, I think a lot of people might be having weeks like I am having. Uh, <laughs> weeks where my boiler went, the boiler leaked onto my electricity plug, so I had to turn the electricity off. So then I didn't have any hot water or electricity or internet, and at the same time the alternator in my car went. Uh, at the same time, I mean, I was in the privileged position of trying to buy a house, but I was outbid by £40,000 on a small house in Govan Hill. Are you sure there wasn't like a giant green comet passing close to the earth that made all this stuff happen? Yeah, maybe. Maybe ACDC or uh, and Stephen King's Cocaine Habit are about to uh, soundtrack my life. But um, yeah, well spotted. Good reference pickup. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean... We don't make we don't make any money from this podcast, but we try not to spend any money on it. And with your valued support, it's not a drain on our finances. Um, so we really do appreciate that. And in return for giving us a couple of dollars or a couple of quid every month, you get to hear it a couple of days early. You get special episodes. You can even spend more money and get merch and songs made out to you and playlists made for you. I mean, it's... It's a real boon. Um, so I would <laughs> highly recommend it. Go to patreon.com forward slash unsungpod um, or you can go to unsungpod.net and uh, find out other ways to help us. But um, yeah, thanks. You can carry on and listen now. Hey folks, get a bunch of fucking pills. <laughs> get a dubstep hat on we're about to talk about something really good this week my name is Mark Fraser and I'm joined by two of Glasgow's finest ravers <laughs> uh, the, 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 the man opposite me does have ravey hair I do have <laughs> ravey hair although I'm going to shave it off tomorrow all of it Ah. well yeah because all I want from my hair is not to have to do anything to it and now it's got <laughs> over like three inches of length I'm having to shampoo it, condition it, brush it. I didn't sign up for any of these things. So um, it's it's getting in the bin tomorrow. You're a Chris, I thought you were a modern man. Such privilege. Imagine what your ancestors had to put up. <laughs> I mean, Chris, your, your locks are looking luscious. I'd, I've gone to the opposite end of that equation. Uh, I, I just grew it out to the point where I could put it behind my ears. Uh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but uh, it does require a fair bit of washing because I have uh, an incredible natural ability to look a lot like a JK. <laughs> 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 and uh, having long hair uh, after maybe 36 hours of, of general wear and tear, it, it looks lank and clumped together and it looks a little bit like you should throw money in a cup for me. Yeah, I might have to do something about it at some point as well. But we're going into winter here, and every single year I've cut my hair before winter, I've got a cold. And this year I don't want to get a cold because I'll automatically think I'm dying. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> true. It's just yeah, getting like a getting like a basic cough or sneeze this year has so much more baggage <laughs> than yeah. ever before. You might as well go about with a fucking bell around your neck. You know, it's <laughs> just it's horrendous. People slamming their doors shut, pulling their kids inside. Well, it. Yeah, it's officially September now that we are recording this. Um, we are also officially in Glasgow back in lockdown, although it's a lockdown that you're allowed to go to the pub, but you can't go to anybody else's house. So uh, that's exciting. 
Um, <laughs> mainly because as soon as I go in someone's house, I start dry humping them. Whereas in the pub, I'm a little bit more. Yeah, exactly. Restrained. I mean, they keep they said it was because a lot of people are having house parties, but I've not been invited to any, so it's got to be bullshit, right? And also, surely the you- people that are having house parties aren't going to abide by the rules anymore, anyway. Yeah, surely they're th- just going to keep be- having house parties. I think it's mainly just Lee Griffiths, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's mainly him that's that's responsible for it. Uh, and if if he was getting more game time, he, he might not have the time to throw all these parties. So really, it's Neil Lennon's fault. That's <laughs> 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 on most things in the last ten days. <laughs> well, I was about to say. I mean, as a, I mean, I think we're all having pretty rubbish weeks, personally. Um, how, as a Celtic fan, you must you're having a pretty rubbish week there, or just a general August week. <laughs> I've, had, I've, I've had I've had quite a couple of weeks. Yeah, as you acknowledged in the in the preamble for the last episode. Sorry, I missed last week, people. Uh, I wasn't very well. Um, it was nothing remotely related to my lungs. It turns out I got quite a rare form of food poisoning from somewhere. I still don't know where. Um, they did tests and stuff, and the doctor was like, ah. Oh. Not seen that in a while. <laughs> <laughs> a collector's edition. What you always like want to hear? <laughs> when you opened a packet of panini and you saw that wee silver Kilmarnock badge, you were like, yes. Oh man, that's some um, Yeah, I, I got like a pretty rare stomach infection last week and it wasn't nice. Um, and it had other knock on effects and just general fatigue. I am so tired. As you can probably tell <laughs> from the fact that whenever one of you guys talks, I take advantage to close my eyes for 20 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I'm pushing through, but yeah, the, the, the Celtic game didn't help. But it sort of just fitted the sort of pit of self-pity that I was splashing about in. And I mean, there was there was more going on as well. I mean, we've all, as you know, David, you're talking in the, the cash call about when it rains, it pours, and trust me, in Scotland, it pours, and it just everything comes at once. You know, money yeah. problems, work, work problems. It's, it's kind of we're getting into the sort of business end of the the closures now, and so uh, or the lockdown, and you're starting to see the toll it's taking on some businesses, and you're starting to see people having to apply for other work because they can't get the hours. Maybe you work in the bar trade, the hours are very limited, and so people who are reliant on overtime and shifts and stuff just can't get them now, and yeah, it's just really starting to. Um, see the subtler and kind of deeper roots of the kind of economic problems of it and I think uh, yeah, it's just been a it's been a long couple of weeks um, a lot of stuff to juggle and I spent most of it on the couch or in the bathroom so, it's, yeah. it's like uh, you know it's like it was a really bad idea to kind of base your entire economy in tourism and hospitality <laughs> I come from Stirling, I could have told you that 39 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I mean, uh, Cultural uh, wasteland. I thought that was a great idea. That's <laughs> <laughs> it, we were all wrong. Well, at least we can all guarantee that Donald Trump is definitely going to lose the election, so that's something to look forward to. Hey, this I don't, don't know about that, man. <laughs> I don't know about that, man. Holy shit. Yeah. Fuck. Is, uh, you can take that to the bank. <laughs> Just like 2016. See, um, see if he does win it, right? I'm, I, I demand we get bumper stickers made that says like, that exact quote attributed to David Weaver. Well, I may have been... <laughs> Slightly facetious there because I mean it does. Oh Christ! It just looks the same as last time, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh but no! I, yeah, I don't think it does look the same as last time. But I was going to say, I think my my take on it's slightly different in that there is no easy result this time because it's so ingrained now that it, you know when he loses, which I think he will, um, he's already set the, the the pretext for it all being 
a fix and a scam mm. and set the scene for domestic terrorism. We already saw it last week, you know, on a number of occasions, just militias and wackos. And I mean, it's interesting to watch the mainstream in a QAnon. You notice that? I mean, this is something I've been banging on about for yeah, like totally. years now. I'm pretty scary, really fascinated. But it's it's dead. It's really surfacing now mm-hmm. as as a as a substantial thing, um, and it's you know it's blossomed really fully into a cult mm-hmm. now, albeit a weird pseudo religious thing. You know there is a big Christian core to it, but also it's not really based in that, and it's just dead interesting as a cultural phenomenon. But it's also I think it's fascinating to listen to you know the people behind the scenes talking about it, and that they're like, oh yeah, it's a curio. For people watching the news, but they were like, for the, the security services in America, they're really worried about it. I mean, Timothy McVeigh, for example, and Ted Kaczynski and stuff were, were the kind of proto QAnon folks, you know, super woke, aware of the global conspiracy and the plan. And, you know, uh, Timothy McVeigh had the Turner Diaries with him and stuff when he, he bombed the, the building. And I, th- I think I think the security services in America and over here now because it's here as well. It's in Germany. The massive rally in Germany, like they're really aware of like the danger of this. And Trump's just whether he wins or not, those people are primed. You know, they're, yeah, they're definitely I mean, primed. you only need one percent of the population to believe that shit, and you've you've got three million people, and then mm-hmm. you only need you know one percent of those three million to go. Oh, I might actually take action on this, and that's you know. You're still talking thousands and thousands of people that could be ready to do something absolutely fucking mental. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, there's been so many foiled attempts in the states. I mean, we all knew about the the pipe bomb one that didn't really pay off, but that was like sent all over the place. And then you had a guy that tried to derail a train. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's loads of them when you dig into it. The things that have been rumbled, and all it takes is a few of them to slip through the net. So yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. I'm not sure about the Trump thing. I do think he'll lose, but I don't necessarily think that by losing, that's going to be the end of it this time. I think there's a there's a rot that uh, could could linger. Um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting. But fuck it, uh, summer's dead. Might as well embrace the darkness to come. Um, I mean, for anyone outside of Scotland, still enjoying that shiny thing in the sky. Feel free to comment on our post with photos of it because we've not seen it in a bit when did we last see the sun here guys um i would have said mid-june <laughs> it's, it's, it's i think we've had three sunny days since may uh but we were listening to um for the album that we're doing today uh one of the tracks has rain in the background and it took me about five minutes to realize that was on the actual track yeah i know <laughs> I, I, I was listening to it there and i was like wait a minute is that the sample or shit <laughs> Had to get the balance right between the window and the uh, the speakers. So, um, David, what are we doing today? This is your choice. Well, I feel like it's maybe the perfect soundtrack to the world right now. It's a mm-hmm. uh, sort of dark, claustrophobic. Um, <laughs> it's we're doing burial, and we're doing burial's debut record. Self-titled Boreal. Um, we can really fuck about the Scottish accent in this one. Yeah, so, I mean, you're like Boreal, Boreal. Where is it? Burial. Some people say Boreal, Boreal, Boreal. I, funnily enough, I was thinking about like when this came out, and it was in a very, a very different time. This was released in 2006, 
<laughs> it really was a different time. I mean, if that, at that time, we were, you know, we still had a Labour government then, and it, but it was the tail end of the Labour government, and it was before the crash. It was before, you know, the financial meltdown. Pre-Obama. But it's, yeah, but it's it's interesting that there's there's despair and there's sadness and moroseness in this music, but it came from a time that, fuck, we'd pay so much money to go back to now. But, you know, anyway, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about where the record comes from culturally. Um, so have either of you guys had much time with Burial before? Am I introducing him to you both? Introducing me to him, yeah. It wasn't exactly what I was expecting it to be either when you said dubstep, but uh-huh. we can talk about that as, as we progress. I'd got into, I'd also say I got into Burial. I was I'll made aware of Burial in the first experiences of it Back when we were doing, I think it was DJ Shadow. Yeah, uh, it was like one of the earlier episodes, and I just sort of went down a wee rabbit hole. I think I continue the Q and on um, theme. I uh, went down a wee rabbit hole on that, and ended up, you know, like just seeing the kind of like that dark kind of. Uh, I don't know. Like I, I wasn't really sure what to call it. It just it, it it's tangential sort of. I think a lot of people that are into one are into the other, mm-hmm. and um, I wasn't really sure how to navigate it though I didn't know the chronology I didn't know what came first and so on so doing an episode on it it's interesting from that respect and I think I was labouring under the illusion that Burial had loads of records and in fact Burial was only got two records he's officially only released two studio albums and then yeah I guess we can kind of talk about the fact that he kind of gave up on the album as a medium as a format yeah uh, which is interesting in itself because I mean we rely pretty much on discussing the album as a format um, so Burial I mean, sorry Unsung of the Future we'll just have to start picking like songs yes yeah, pretty <laughs> much <laughs> like there'll be a new generation like, what, the fuck, is, what, what the fuck are these old guys talking about it's an album what is an album <laughs> so he's an interesting guy very sort of enigmatic and yeah. I like that about it actually I, I didn't realise that either That he doesn't play live at all It's just yep. a studio project And he was very private about it as well In fact nobody was really sure who he even was Until about 2008 Yeah right? I think it it came out There was, I mean, because his Second record, Untrue, was released in 2008 <laughs> And was nominated for the Mercury Music Award and of course looking for sort of speculation the tabloids got involved with oh who's this weird anonymous guy and they even they were like speculating whether he was Richard D. James Aphex Twin mm. or even I mean Fortet, well yeah a lot, of, a lot of people thought he might be Fortet because it turns out that Burial went to school with, with Kieran Hebden who is Fortet Um but also, I mean, they also said Norman Cook. Is he Norman Cook? <laughs> and I mean, that's just the sun going. That's a, who are yeah, other DJs? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> is, is he the Chemical Brothers? Yeah, maybe. You know, they both they both have keyboards. Um, but no, it, so it turns out that he's a guy called William Bevan uh, from South London, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, he went to the same Elliot School as Kieran Hebden, and uh, I mean. F- He's he did some interviews in the early days around those 
when those two records came out. But he was he basically said, "I'm just a guy who likes making tunes." Um, he grew up a fan of jungle garage, two step garage stuff, and the UK sort of rave scene. Because um, yeah, back then, jungle is massive. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait, what? <sighs> what, what? What was the? There's a joke about that though. Oh yeah, why was why was Tarzan lost? Because <laughs> jungle is massive. <laughs> um, we're, we're, they're talking about us being old guys. There you go. This well, the yeah, old, exactly. old guys humor, right? In. Um, so yeah, so basically, I think he'd heard his older brother's dark jungle tunes and got into rave from that. And he described hearing those mad, weird rave tunes is like the same time, the same thing as like when you first see Terminator or Alien, that sort of mm. sci-fi yep. dystopian world building thing. And that's mm-hmm. something that's, you know, he's gone to, he's very into atmosphere and mood as much as he is into melody and percussion. Yeah, I, th- I think even just off the bat, that's something that makes this stand out. I, I can't say I would have had a lot of time for it if it wasn't for the, the sheer atmosphere that, that, that permeates it. Um, you're talking about the stuff that he grew grew up in or was inspired by early on. I, I kind of hear, in in terms of that mood, the sinister nature of it. I think is what I'm getting at. Like there's a there's a there's a kind of malice just in the music. A little bit yeah. of melancholy, but also a little bit of malice. Um, which we'll talk about the kind of urban feel of it later. But um, it, it reminded me somewhat of Massive Attack and Tricky. Yeah, there's some definitely trip hop elements there. Yeah, there's there, there's two groups that I thought did the malice and the sort of sinister, you know, that like karma coma and things like that, and mm-hmm. you know that kind of really oppressive but understated oppressiveness that um, that those acts were, were excellent at, and I feel like he's channeled that part of it. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying he sounds incredibly like them sonically, but I do feel in terms of mood. An aesthetic, yeah. There's there's a lot in there, and that that was something for me to really grab onto with it. Um, and I was surprised because you know I wasn't. I've never really found any music of you know like you said two step, uh, future garage, jungle, dubstep. I've never really. There's never been any bands from those genres that have, have grabbed me at all. Mm-hmm. So this is probably the first one that I've actually had a good time. Um, not all the way through, but at, at points. Yeah, I think we mentioned it was dubstep last week, mm. and I mean. Dubstep now is pretty much a dirty word to go along with, you know, yeah, it's new, not, it's new not metal womp, womp. and new rave. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, this very much isn't what you expected, I guess, in terms of dubstep. No, like, I agree with Chris. Like, it does have a, a very sort of dystopian feel. It's kind of sinister. It does bring to mind things like, as you said, Alien and Terminator and stuff like that. But it's not overtly 80s. You know, I think you can, I think there's a lot of artists that will be inspired by that kind of thing and will have a kind of an 80s tinge whereas mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think his stuff really does have that although in saying that I do think it is some of the sounds are slightly dated now um, but we'll, we, I guess that's something we'll touch upon as well um, also to me it sounds very quintessentially a London 
Yeah, absolutely. Yes, very, very, very. There's something, I mean, I know that he's described it as being London at night almost, and and he Mm -hmm. was really inspired by that Gary Oldman film, No By Mouth. Um, No By Mouth. No By Mouth. (laughs) (laughs) He said that was one of the only places that got, that was one of the only times that art got London right. Yeah. You know, in terms of its feel, I saw it, I saw the uh, the album described as a sullen audio portrait of London. Even before I knew anything about him, I mean, I was listening to it just going, you know, cutting about. And um, before I sat down to read his bio and look at the history, I I just felt it sounded very Londonian, mm. which was like, I think maybe to some extent explains some of the sort of emotional distance I have from it and from that style of music. I think. Garage feels very London. Um, this is a very urban, like I don't mean urban as in urban music or as in non-white culture. I mean like urban as in, in towns. Yep. Yeah. Um, there's loads of like little kind of artistic intricacies. I think that felt very suggestive of the inner city. I feel like uh, across his work, um, the use of little kind of fanfare notes, um, bursts of like synthetic brass, mm-hmm. it's like car horns and it's like buses passing, it's like bikes, it's, you know, the, the the amount of delay that he uses reminded me a lot of, you know, the reflections in windows reflected in the windows of other tall buildings, you know, the way that buildings just get into that sort of infinite reflective sort of inner city thing where you don't know what you're looking mm-hmm. at. And, um, but very much in darkness, you know, we're not talking about Las Vegas or or even New York City. I felt like it was much more of a kind of more shut down city, mm-hmm. not like a bustling city, but the kind of more in the outskirts and a bit more desolate. Um, so yeah, it really it really did have that strong metropolitan and specifically London uh, feel. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't quite put my finger on what exactly that was, like like where I was getting that. So it's, I mean, credit to him as an artist, he's channeled something. Um, I mean, the cover of the the album we're doing is a, an aerial f- photograph of an area in London, yeah, South London. That's where um, he's from, yeah. Which I mean, even even some of the, the his, his track names, you know, like there's Night Bus and Distant Lights, mm. and then on yeah, yeah. on Untrue, there's In McDonald's. You know, everybody's been at McDonald's at 4am in the queue. Uh, that sort of weird, ethereal, post-rave, trying not to get battered, but also just needing some chips. Late night late night McDonald's is one of the most godforsaken places you can ever be. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's as dystopian as you can get, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like, the other thing that I really strongly associate with London, and it, again anyone clicking here might notice that I'm not a huge fan of London, is uh, the, the myriad spin-off chicken restaurants. Uh, we've got a bit of that here now as well, but um, all the MFC, KFFC, mm-hmm. uh, Chicken Brothers, <laughs> Chicken Pioneers, Chicken Place, Chicken Venue, Chicken Shop, House of Chicken, Brothers of Chicken yep. House. People love fried you know, chicken. It's just like... <laughs> it's just like so many of them and it's so it's so junk I don't mean like I, I'm not meaning like oh it's bad for you I don't mean like that I just mean it's such trash culture these knockoff sort of buy them off the shelf shops to sell this fucking garbage food mm-hmm. uh, and this depressing scenario is like something that I really strongly associate Man, with London. you should check out a chicken connoisseur on YouTube he's a young London guy and he goes to all these shops and tests out the burgers. He's called it's uh, the Pengus Munch. It's called, 
I mean, wow, it's, so this, is, this, this is a vegan advocating <laughs> chicken channel on YouTube. That's like me sitting watching gay porn. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I understand that people like it, you know, so I don't have to. Same. Same I can here. enjoy the critique, if not the the uh, the product. Yeah, I can, ju- I can just pick off the batter and eat it. <laughs> um, oh, dear. Well, yeah, there is that. One other thing. I thought that you might have recognised Burial From is Adam Curtis documentaries. The radicals, the artists, the musicians and our whole counterculture actually became part of the trickery because they too had retreated into the make-believe world which is why their opposition has no effect. Uh, I didn't, but now that you say it, that that makes a lot of sense. Adam Curtis has used a lot of uh, Burial especially in his last to in hyper normalization and in Bitter Lake, he used a lot of sort of later burial. Um, and Curtis has gone on record saying that he loves the sort of dystopian darkness that that um, it sort of brings. I mean, I think I, I would like to kind of add a little addendum to what Mark's saying though about the London thing, and I, th- I think the second album for me it loses something. It still sounds sort of inner city, but it begins to sound more like a car advert. Um, yeah. I, I, I think it sounds like a, a good car advert. It sounds like a car advert with a cool soundtrack, but it starts to feel like you're you're in like a very dark Audi commercial or something like that. And, and that still is true to that sort of city theme, and it's still in its own way true to London, you know, quite affluent. And, and in many ways, you're, like, you're hearing that after the fact, because a lot of electronic his music, and then therefore commercial music and adverts have been influenced by that take on London. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know, did he, did he um, sync it with a lot of adverts and things like that? I mean, he no, he's, Curtis, he's that's, avoided that's it. Different. He's not really, yeah. he's not really done much um, commercial work. He's more, do, he's done work with, um, you know, the guys from Massive Attack and stuff like that on art pieces. But yeah, he's, he's pretty much strayed away from uh, syncing his tunes. So... Fair play to him, because you can imagine there must have been some quite high demand for that. Well, yeah. It just lends itself so well. And I mean, I guess that, I'll, I'll sort of follow that up with, and maybe, I, I just want to talk about dubstep as a genre in itself. And I mean, he kind of, he falls just on the outside of it. But it's interesting what happened to dubstep. It was a, a genre that grew in London in the late 90s and early 2000s from UK Garage and then dub reggae and two-step and then using sort of grime and, and jungle and stuff like that as well. It was really a very interesting sonic exploration of a certain part of all those, you know, musics. It was sparse, mm-hmm. had syncopated rhythmic patterns. They really fucking love bass. You know, it was really a lot about sub-bass. Yeah, it was <clears> a weird part of the Venn diagram, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. It was just this, I, this little corner. And I, I remember... I, I, like I remember John Peel was always in early dubstep as was Marianne Hobbs uh, and I was actually I must have been 19 at the time and I was in the uh, my little university hall in Stirling you know underground oh, dubstep yeah Scottish dubstep well careful. underground <laughs> um, 8 feet by 8 feet designed on a Swedish prison synth, uh, mm-hmm. and 
away from home for the first time in my life for a long time and uh with the constant threat that your uh, campus might burn to the ground well, exactly. as those as those as buildings they tended were to do. <laughs> and I just remember I think it was maybe uh, Giles Peterson was on at three in the three o'clock in the morning and I was just listening to this weird music that you know, I'd been into DJ Shadow and Aphex Twin and stuff, but this whatever it was was sparser yet heavier and very, very ominous. And it turned out it was a guy called Distance. who was another part of, of the Hyperdub and, you know, Hyperdub is the label that Burial released on and then yeah. the early sort of dubstep scene. And I got absolutely fucking obsessed with Distance. He had a lot of actual, like, guitar chugs in it, big doomy riffs, but it was also very urban and the artwork was all, you know, inner city stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, that's, that's how I then found Burial because um, that was back in the day when Pandora still worked in the UK and I'd just stuck distance in and then burial came up as being released this year and i was able to find it but um <clears throat> yeah dubstep used to be this really interesting exploration of bass and sparseness and then as what often happens with genres you know it sort of grew in clubs mainstream artists and producers started incorporating it into their sounds got more and more commercial and then out of fucking nowhere, Skrillex happened. (laughs) You know, a little skinny goth former frontman of a shit metalcore band comes along. I mean, I saw them support... What were they called? From first to last. From first to last, I saw them support Lamb of God in the garage in 2004. And then by 2008, he was like one of the biggest electronic musicians in the world. And it was it was weird seeing dubstep come from, you know, the underground of London and being a very London-centric genre and then being stripped of all that mood and atmosphere and meaning. And then they just basically just took the drop and the bass, streamlined it, moved it to America. And America, who hadn't really had the sort of the 90s dance music phase, America suddenly discovered ecstasy and outdoor festivals and Coachella and it's been fucking mad ever since and IDM is now you know the biggest genre in the world it's it's mad to see how that happened and it all came from this weird introspective London scene does Skrillex count as IDM? well no he's EDM EDM yeah he's EDM. so like they moved from they moved from IDM lost all its soul and then it you know became the shit that we now know as EDM so <laughs> um, you know it's interesting you talk about the aesthetic and I think as a bystander Who's who's seen a, l- a lot of this music, and I've seen the covers, and I've seen the the artwork from a distance. Like I, I associate it with a mixture of very sort of linear graphic designy, uh, quite 
cold drawings mm-hmm. uh, mixed with sort of a version of graffiti, you know, urban graffiti and art, like some a kind of collision of the two. I don't think Burial is any real exception, at least with the second album. And I think like that linear quality, the very graphic design thing, it, it ties it in a wee bit in my head to London, those kind of like creative industries that you get in like Shoreditch and all those kind of yep. parts of the city mixed with the sort of the pretensions of, you know, urban credibility and graffiti and edgy kind of counterculture overtones. Like, it, it does seem like that. I think I found that sometimes a little bit forced. I think, like, I'd, if you strip that sort of pretension away, it actually just feels quite clean. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, can, it can be far too clean. I don't think this album is, but I think a lot of that kind of music <coughs> is far too clean. It's very hard to find the humanity in it. It just sort of happens, and then it becomes like a very cerebral process of, oh, this is very representative of the city, and you're saying Skrillex took, it disregarded that sort of I part of IDM, mm-hmm. but I mean, I don't necessarily think the I part was always particularly authentic. I think some of it was, and I think Barry was a good example, but others... It, it was quite pretentious. It was quite down to like yeah. I mean, oh, there's. Is, I remember this is real. Trying to you know going down these rabbit holes and and listening to original dubstep guys like Scream and Benga. <laughs> And then there was like people like vexed, more glitchy folk like box cutter and stuff. And very much in the same way as Aphex Twin, you know, f- sort of found the humanity in the weirdness, mm-hmm. and but then there was a, a whole load of glitchy folk that you couldn't find the, that human connection to. There was a lot of that happening here. There's a lot of dubstep that sounded very mechanical or very like it's it's good at what it is, but it has no c- connection beyond that. Mm. And I yeah, I think exactly. I think what I'm trying to say is that Aphex Twin is another good example. Whilst you can sort of approximate what Aphex Twin does, it's very hard to sound like Aphex Twin because it's so unconventional and so different in all its eccentricities. Mm-hmm. Um, and with dubstep, I mean, you, you spoke about how this style of music that Burial does influenced a lot of car adverts, and I think it, it, it did become quite easy to simulate it. I think that's yeah. what it is. It became quite an easy form of music to simulate and people lost sight of what made it feel genuine and what just sounded like it ticked the right boxes. So there's a lot of shit out there that is very linear and very cold and ticks all those boxes of like, right, graffiti, right, graphic design, right, drums, da-da-da-da-da-da. And it just, but it has no, it, it elicits no emotional response from me whatsoever. I find that a really cold genre. Yeah. Um, this does occasionally wander into that area, but for the most part, I'd say it, it, it's the right side of it where it does feel like, you know, it's got a lot of heart. Yeah. Um, I, and as I said, <clears throat> the, going into the second album, I think that starts to to dwindle. The, the, the returns, that the emotional returns dwindle from the second track onwards. Yeah. Um, although it's interesting to see the second track, do you know, it was the second highest rated album of the entire year on Metacritic. Yeah, and Pitchfork uh, said it was the most important electronic album of the decade. Yeah, untrue. The second record, and it was the one that got the Mercury nomination as well. 
it's the one that seems to you know be more critically lauded and have this huge aura around it and to mm. me I didn't feel it's got some good tracks on it but I always go back to the debut album yeah. it's the one that it I definitely on. sounds more like a Mercury album doesn't it yeah like the second one definitely sounds more acceptable and palatable to a Mercury music prize type crowd you know the kind of fucking idiots that would nominate Coldplay yeah yeah exactly um, yeah, it's pretty staggering when you think about it like in terms of how it worked though because the first album was recorded over the course of five years and then the second one was recorded in the course of a year yeah you know so you have to wonder how much stuff he had lying around as well maybe he was building an album mm. for that critical acclaim which he had in the first record but maybe he was just looking to go elsewhere and also I suppose this might lead into something you're going to talk about as well David but he then becomes someone who just disregards the album entirely right so yep. clearly I think I mean, you could probably make an argument for dubstep in general that he's probably taking the album as a format as far as it could go for this particular kind of music certainly from well, his point I mean, of view anyway yeah, I mean, I guess we, we were talking about this on a very different topic, but just the idea of songs versus albums. And I mean, certain genres definitely are more track orientated and f- are difficult. You know, it's very difficult to put together a good, happy, hardcore album <laughs> or, yeah. you know, a good hardcore, tra- you know, rave album or whatever. But, you know, they'll just need a few ballads. In there'll there be club tracks that stand out and they'll be classics, but, you know, they might never have been on an album. They're just, you know, standalone singles. And, yeah. you know, that's, I guess club culture is very actually different to album yeah, culture. Orbital was a good example of that as well. Like there were tracks that were just standalones that were the biggest ones. Yeah. See me FX20 yeah. early on. Um, I guess uh, before we go on and we, we talk through his release history, I just, I want to go back. I think the, the, the way that you're talking about that, him having humanity actually links back to an artist that we talked about a couple of months ago, very similar in the way that they work, I think, Jay Dilla, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. focusing on avoiding that quantized noise. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, that quantized yeah, yeah. sound that brings the sort of rigid mechanical sound that imitators will fall back on and... Mm-hmm. So the way that he works, he I think is it Soundforge, which is like a fairly retro. Soundforge. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not like he's working on live or Pro Tools or anything. He's working on a fairly basic audio. I used that for a while. Yeah. And you know, in an interview, he said, "Once I change something, I can never unchange it. I can only see the waves. So I know when I'm happy with my drums because they look like a nice fishbone. When they look just yeah. skeletal as fuck in front of me." I, and so I'll just know they'll sound good um, you know and he doesn't use a sequencer because if his drums were timed too perfectly they'd lose something and quotes sound rubbish you know so he's his percussion patterns are intuitively arranged rather than rigidly placed and it's those yeah I mean he, he'll have He'll have copy-pasted drum loops but he'll have copy-pasted them in a way that is not perfectly quantized so exactly. it does make it does make musical sense but if you were to try and match it up with an ARP on like a kind of mathematically exact BPM Mm -hmm. then it would drift probably because he's assembled it by hand but it's that sort of very small hesitation and like imperfection that you hear that makes it human Mm-hmm. And and that's going to be the difference between the imitators because if you're churning stuff out, it's far easier to just set up a drum beat on it, like and quantize it. And stuff yeah, like that. absolutely. This way is a bit more painstaking. And then on his sort of the perpendicular part of that, his <laughs> uh, non-percussive uh, production relies on similarly organic sounds and samples and 
wonky human vocals and you know as mentioned the the rain and the yeah those little parps um and he <laughs> little parps. little parps that's my rapper name little parp <laughs> <laughs> and i think and he explores it on his on the two records and then i think on his eps he then each ep he goes down a little rabbit hole and explores more but that's something that you know throughout it's that attention to detail and mm-hmm. maintaining a human feel to it and maintaining imperfection that I think really yeah stands out. It's a very fair comment, like drawing that analogy with with Jay Dilla as well, yeah, because that is where the that je ne sais quoi, like what is making this better than the people that try and copy it, and it is subtle things like that, it's things that are actually not immediately perceptible mm-hmm. until you until you know about them but they do have a sort of subconscious effect you know because the more irregular those drum parts are even if it's just by fragments you never quite get into that mode where you're just starting to shut them out mm-hmm. you know because they're always they're always slightly re-triggering you yep. in, a, in a way because they're shifting um, before we go into the record as well I just want to mention you talked about some of his later stuff I noticed he'd collaborated we collaborated with Fortex we went to school together but he collaborated with Tom York as well I think you can really hear the influence of that collaboration and the, really hear the influence of Burial by the time Tom York got to the Tomorrow's Modern Boxes yep. era of his music. Being honest, I'm not a fan of Tom York's stuff from that point on. I really loved the Eraser. I think that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. But you can certainly hear, uh, I think, more of the burial style production and something a bit more purely electronic about that later Tom York stuff. I don't think his con- contributions with burial are, are great. Tom York tends to join tracks and just kind of warble over them, and I find it quite distracting because he's just unavoidably Tom York. Yeah, I really, I love Radiohead. Don't get me wrong, I, I love him, but. Um, he he can't just add him to a song and compliment the song. It, it's so obviously Tom York mm-hmm. on top of a song, and it really there's a handful of times that I feel that actually works. He's maybe got a cover of Pink Floyd that he did with Sparkle Horse that I think is great. Um, but and we always disagree on the PJ Harvey, don't we? PJ Harvey one, yeah, I really don't like his. Whereas stuff me and Mark that. think that's fucking great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I don't think I, I, don't, I don't know that Tom York really brings a lot to the party. But I think Tom York took something away from the party. You know, I think he filled his pockets with onion rings. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is truly a metaphor. Thank you for that. <laughs> so before we talk about the record, I suppose we should go through his discography, which ostensibly should be quick because it's only two records. But I think a big part of Burial's musical exploration is his giving up on the album as a format and then his EPs which show, I don't know, real dynamism, fuck, how do you say that word? Dynamism? Dynamism. (laughs) Um, We'll talk about Burial, that came out in 2006 and then Untrue came out in 
and that was the one that was you know nominated for the Mercury Award. It's seen as the landmark dubstep record. In 2017, Pitchfork called it the most important electronic album of the century so far. And I think it's a great record, but I mean, how can you say it's more important than Burial? Because it's just Mm -hmm. building on what Burial did. And to me, taking some away from it as well, like taking some of that purity away as well, Mm -hmm. it is a little bit more polished. Pitchfork is not prone to hyperbole, though. Well, I know. Exactly. (laughs) Sorry. I thought um, there was a, a list of people that loved it though, right? I mean, The Guardian ranked it 31st on the 100 best albums of the 21st century so far. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's, you know, yeah. it's very much seen as like his masterpiece. Who else? AV Club put it on its top of its best electronic record. Rolling Mix Mag Hag at number five. Rolling Stone the- said it was the 11th best electronic dance music album of all time. Um, <laughs> it's just sort of meaningless when you get to that yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. Though, it? It's like <laughs> um, 11th. Well, you know, Guardian had it thirty-first best record of the entire century. You know, so it's a good record, and it sold sold sixty thousand in the UK so far for, which is good for an underground dubstep record. You know, ambient dubstep record on a small indie label. Yeah, but and I mean, that's for, that's where it qualifies as unsung. Let's be honest, because the the praise like it's lauded for praise, but yeah. it, where where Burial deserves credit is the fact that he's under recognised as a commercial talent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, By the way, can I just say, sorry to derail it, but partly because if you're right and he's avoided sync, then I think sync plays a huge part in the careers of these kind of musicians and just getting those little bits of music into people's heads and then people start, you know, yeah. um, shazamming it and stuff and like, what is that? Um, so yeah, I mean, he's probably, I, I, I respect that as a, an artistic decision. You know? um, so his album, Untrue, as we've said, completely lauded. He could have retired then or he could have, you know, come out with another record a couple of years later. But what he's decided to do since is release EPs. There was Ghost Hardware. Came out in 2007. Street Hole. There was a bit of a gap there for four years and people were like, oh, what's he going to do? He's gone into hiding and he came out with Street Halo. No, it's because he was away working on the new Fatboy Slim album. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then there was uh, Kindred in 2012. True and Rough Sleeper came out the same year. Rival Dealer 2013. And then, you know, there's been five in the last four years as well. I think highlights for me, Street Halo, really fucking great, dark and heavy. And after like that four year absence was a very welcome return. And it left people wanting more because they were like, new Burial album, when? And, it, you know, it just turned out it was never going to come. Interesting that you you, you sort of picked that one out because I did notice when I was looking at fan lists that Street Halo was close to, if not last on a lot of those lists. Oh, see, I like it. I, but I, 
I think maybe people there's been a four year gap and people were expecting either something completely different or just like a mind blower but it was just, it was maybe just a bit more of the same but to me it was like I enjoyed it then 2013's Rival Dealer big change up to it's basically the closest he's come to doing like a proper rave track just absolutely fucking huge uh 2016's young death was very ambient hardly any percussion on it very sort of fortetti vibes and then last year's claustro big callbacks back to like 90s garage it's quite druggy and clubby it's very big and colorful overall he's done like you know 10 or 11 EPs and they all have very different sounds um, but it's it's just interesting you know he could easily have made three or four albums out of those but yeah I think there are a couple of collections <coughs> kicking about the yeah. rails so yeah last year mm-hmm. last year Hyperdub released tunes 2011 to 2019 as a two disc compilation it works it's you know it's nearly three hours long and yeah. it's and a good, not intended to flow in each other are they? no it's so. like an introduction sort of best of and I, I guess it'll help the label but it's not necessarily an artistic statement um, mm-hmm. but yeah good record so yeah and then I guess we should we'd talk about the album itself mm-hmm. this album is absolutely uh, soaked in reverb and delay and it's not a criticism I think it lends it a lot of the noirish feel mm-hmm. that it has and it's just it's something that's just there throughout um, and a, a really big feature of it yeah, also the I kind mean, of vinyl I, skipping sound that's always that permeates pretty much everything it does actually as well the kind of yeah vinyl totally there's always that little the hiss and yeah. the crackle mm-hmm. so starts off with a little audio intro untitled one and then we come into track two distant lights And I, th- I think this is my favourite burial track. Yeah, this is the best thing he's done, um, I think. It's mm. like, so it's got this simple little synth melody, that sound that you said, Chris, is quite, you know, his his keys, that he when he does use a melody, are sparse, but they are quite reminiscent of, yeah, traffic or, you know, something like that. You know what it sounds a bit like? And I think it, again, contributes to the Londonian, you know, inner city feel. It sounds... In, in combination with the reverb and, and the delay, like a, a horn in the metro, like in a, in a deserted underground railway, yeah. and it just sounds like a, a resonant horn echoing down the sort of tiled walls. Yeah, of, or maybe of, of like the, a of warning the beep of the door closing or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and then it's got this sample of blades uh, or knives being sharpened. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And yeah. the you know th- that very paper chase. Yeah, that tied into the percussion and the rhythm is just I don't know. It's just so fucking good and so hypnotic. And then you've got yeah, also the, the 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 bass in this. I think it's important. There's a really subtle rumble, like a very very low end sinister growl. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that they do in films that you could you. To, to set the mood in a scene where you're trying to get your audience on the edge of their seat and they don't actually notice the sound mm-hmm. you can't hear it it's just there it's only you know you, you, yeah and if, I mean if you're listening on your laptop or on your little bluetooth speaker you won't get it you know mm, you have yeah, to have it's half decent headphones in or a you know a loud hi-fi to get it absolutely and in good headphones it was so effective like, it was really really foreboding uh, to walk about with that tune I think that's a, a brilliant song mm-hmm. I really do and it's a hell of a way to start um with, with such a such a huge statement, if it reminds um, me of like sort of driving about London at night, really claustrophobic and yeah, like condensation on the window. Yeah, and we spoke about it earlier on. You you mentioned it, Dave, but it does sound very played as well, almost. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Then it moves into Space Ape. This is kind of a callback to his earlier days as just a, it's a sort of slow, much more proper dubstep tune, and it's featuring the space entitled ape. Space Ape, who did a lot of work with Hyperdub. Uh, he's like an MC and a spoken word artist, and was a huge part of that sort of cross between dubstep and grime. And I'm, this this song always used to be my least favorite. I just I didn't quite get it. It doesn't quite go anywhere and I remember like a couple of reviews say this is like the only track on the record that is unlikable but I've gone back to it now and I actually I quite like how foreboding it is and I've kind of I quite like how weird and nonsensical the you know the poetry is as well it isn't one that, that jumped out to me it maybe is something that you need to spend longer with but it, yeah it didn't really connect it certainly certainly for me it was i wouldn't necessarily skip but it felt like a it didn't keep up the pace of uh, of distant lights that's for sure but then goes into wonder and I, I really love this it's got that very Blade Runner type melody mm. on top and it's another one that's mm. got that huge subtle bass sort of popping in underneath but I, oh, I don't uh, know those those fanfare horn sounds they're a bit more restrained in Burial but they're also quite a, a Vangelis or even like Hans Zimmer in the, in the yeah definitely Blade the, Runner like, was, once again there's soundtrack is a big influence mm-hmm. yeah definitely um, and I love this sort of little syncopated synth line that comes in. It's very yeah, spacious. Really- and then the percussion is really subtle, but at the same time, very clicky and lively. But it's sort of happening in the background. Then on a night bus, which is a fairly small ambient interlude. I 
have to I have to say this is one of the standout tracks for me. Same. I know it's it, it's not uh, it's not trying to be one of the big moments, and I think in and not trying to be that, it becomes something really quite special. Yeah, uh, you talked earlier on about the the stuff that he'd done after uh, you know when he'd abandoned the al- album format and some of it being quite uh, like like percussion free, mm-hmm. and I think that this is a. a Great little bit of music, uh, no percussion, really mournful, kind of delicate, um, and also that kind of. I think it's rain. I wasn't sure if it was rain or pink noise. Really reminds me of those kind of ten-hour black screen movies <laughs> that I put on yeah. on YouTube when I when I can't sleep. But um, yeah, I actually think Nightbus is a, a a real understated gem on this album. Yeah, I actually I think it ties up nicely. There's another one later on, Forgive, yeah, which is very similar. Then it moves into Southern Comfort. Which is kind of a big club banger. It's very dark once again. I mean, we're just using the same words over and over. But uh, mm-hmm. where, where was the last time any of you guys actually drank Southern Comfort? Oh God, I have no idea. I don't think I've ever drank it. Maybe I drank it for free somewhere. You know, it's like, did they still sell it? I mean, it was always that drink that you absolutely scunnered yourself because you got so brutally drunk one night that you could never smell it again. Yeah, because it's, it's not even a real. It's like got sh- extra sugar and stuff in it. It's like not a whiskey, but like a whiskey. It's all a cure. drink, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, vibe, yeah, I made I, I made venoms during lockdown, and that's one of the key components of a venom. Oh God, oh my God! I didn't really, I've not seen it in ages. Um, it was just it, like <laughs> this song obviously reminded me. I was like, I can't was like to eighteen that? last time I had that, and I was violently ill. <laughs> that's when I fell asleep face down in Colin's lap because I had long hair. The police came up because she thought I was giving Colin a blowjob in the street. <laughs> I mean, I mean we were absolutely fucked I mean this we song this song does faced. sound like this is like the one that sounds like a an, an ode to old raves and mm-hmm. you know mess and chaos but it sounds like <laughs> you've got the horns there but they're faded it sounds like I don't know it sounds like the memory of a rave in a big warehouse that is now empty if you can uh, if you get what I mean um, that's a nice idea actually like it's it's not the rave it's just the echoes the ghosts yeah exactly of of of, of the noise just echoing around the room it's, so it's it's sort of like see when you put something through reverb and then you turn down the dry signal so you're left with only the output signal and you just hear the reverb of the notes but you don't hear the notes themselves yeah it's a bit like that or yeah. when you go to the port cabin outside and you can hear it all happening but you're <laughs> you're like holy shit that's that sounds mental <laughs> um i think the next track you hurt me is one of my absolute favorites it brings a lot of the things together it's one of the tracks that ties in just about everything that he does well it's got the big vocal melody it's got middle eastern samples I was just going to say the Middle Eastern sample thing uh, again for the the, the London vibes, mm-hmm. the multicultural London thing. The inclusion of those sort of uh, Middle Eastern scales and and tones is quite important. To that because I mean, if you've been to London, you know like, London's not a white city. London is yeah. like a huge melting pot of a city, and I think that definitely complements the album. Yeah, yeah. Um, then gutted. It's a, it's a quieter one, but I really love that melancholic feel of the vocals (laughs) 
sort of ever-changing rhythm it contorts this was, this was a low point for did me did you not like it um nah I, like i didn't hate it but i think i found it really unremarkable i felt like at points it felt like somebody carrying a box of watches about like there was a the, the shift in nature of the percussion didn't connect i kind of got what was sort of going on but i didn't think it was particularly well realized i mean that sounds really arrogant the guy's very good at what he does it just i just couldn't find anything to grip onto in this song and it was one of the moments where i really started to get a bit fatigued mm-hmm. yeah I, I kind of agree like for me um at this point i kind of feel as though you're kind of doing the half-assed version of something you just did better earlier on the record yeah i know what you yeah. mean like it's very much <sighs> he does tracks that explore one part and then he does a track that explores another part and then the fact that he does tracks that puts them all together brilliantly that means that sometimes the tracks that are only doing one part sound like they're missing something I, yeah I guess that's one way of looking at it um, then the next track is uh, Forgive which is another ambient one and I think mm. I love this one I think it's like I just think he's very good at that sort of mm. stuff I think that's the, yeah it, totally it, it really suits him it actually it reminds me very much of the album that Ben talked about The Caretaker that sort mm. of yeah. faded memory ideal um, yeah also like what you were saying about the echoes in the, the room of the rave that was there The Caretaker's very very much about, all about that isn't yeah, it yeah I mean a ballroom rather than a rave but you know mm. it's pretty much yeah. the same ideal hey ballrooms or raves for old folk well exactly (laughs) just the raves of the day then Broken Home much more upbeat yet still sort of broken track lovely wee melody yeah Um, it kind of feels a bit more aggressive to me it's because the way the subs are always kind of dancing around in the main sections of the song. Yeah, it's, it's like broken mm-hmm. and sort of all over the place a little bit still. Yeah. And do you know what? One thing that I, this made me realise about the record, and it's on my notes here, is like a lot of the vocals are, are very alien, you know, you know, mm-hmm. almost unknowable. Um, yeah, and also quite genderless as well. Mm-hmm. It kind of speaks to the alienation the record kind of has around it. Yeah, it's got a feeling mm-hmm. of alienation around it, which is one of the things I found quite attractive about it. Uh, then prayer it's a subtle and dark one and I think owes a huge amount to Teardrop by Massive Attack Mm -hmm. I I think it's maybe an homage Um, either that or he's accidentally ripped it off but (laughs) you know it works well and then pirates builds it's one of the ones that has kind of everything on it a big callback to distant lights and winder huge percussion that bass is rumbling underneath Mm. It's just, you know, fucking great. Um, big track to finish on, basically. And then it kind of fades out on Untitled 2. I went into the bathroom. 
some aspirin, and I happen to look in the mirror, and I swear to God, I see something. Mm. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, I think I, I got it pretty much the month it came out, and it's been one of my favourite records ever since. Uh, I was surprised that uh, I liked it. I, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time with it, but certainly some of the tunes, like Distant Lights. I mean, uh, that's that's a great bit of music. Um, yeah, and I think it's a huge musical movement. We'd probably be not be, we'd probably look pretty foolish if we didn't have something in there representing it. And so I'm, I'm quite happy to put this in. And I think it's a, it's a good suggestion and definitely better than the, the album that came after it. Yeah, which is more critically lauded, but I think this is a sharper record. Mm. Yeah, it's just more interesting, yeah, more human. The the sort of atmosphere of it reminded me a bit of uh, Excavation by the Hacks and Cloak, even though he was not a dubstep artist at all. Mm. And I really like that album, and one day I will bring it, and it's one of the only... It's, it's like when Chris picks Saul Williams, a hip-hop record, that would be my only electronic record I think I'll bring. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Well, yeah, but like electronic artists like Hacks and Cloak and Arca, I think they owe a huge amount to Burial because yes. they've taken, they've got rid of the percussion, but they've built on the atmosphere. Absolutely, that's I think that's the key thing for me. I, I was not I was not expecting to enjoy this when you said dubstep, but clearly um, I was wrong about what I thought dubstep was, which is fine. It's one of the great things about this podcast is we get to learn shit like that, and I, I enjoy that. One thing I also really liked about his music, and this is going to sound a bit strange, but it's really great for for doing like deep concentrating work on if you're concentrating on something I found I found listening to his entire discography really kind of really helped when I was writing or whenever I was like working well I mean you know that YouTube ch- YouTube channel like lo-fi hip hop beats for mm. concentrating on it could basically just be burial on repeat it's like that sort of rainy relaxing late night soundtrack to trying to get this fucking thesis on Neil Gramskyism <laughs> finished. Talking from experience, <laughs> yeah, that was a bit too specific. Yeah. <laughs> I like it, and I think I think we have to put it in. So, and I mean, I guess, I guess, the thing we could say is that it, I mean, it's not a perfect record because there are sort of callbacks to his clubby days and imperfect tracks on it. But he that he gave up on the album. So we, I guess we should be glad that at least, you know, we might not have had this record. We might have just had to deal with tracks, which would have been interesting because maybe there wouldn't have been the imperfection. It's a, it's a different experience. Yeah, yeah, it's a, but, it's a different experience. I do find it quite interesting how he hasn't moved on to either, you know, do a production of songwriting for other people or do films and stuff. People tend to do that when they get that level of fame, Mercury Music Prize level. The Hags and yeah, Bolt certainly mean, done it, you know. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but he's he's an he's anonymous approach, and you know, avoiding sync options uh, suggests that he's got sort of different priorities. Yeah, he's just he's a reclusive man, mm-hmm. and I'm into it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, did you guys get a, a Nexus for this? The, this is the first time we're seeing Nexus tonight. Will it be the last? What do they have in store this, for this us? Is not good for-
Yeah, so who did who were we trying to connect so, to? Uh, Anna Goldthorpe, our good friend Anna Goldthorpe, uh, had nominated Kat Slater, <laughs> who is a character from EastEnders. Yep, yep. I mean, everybody knows EastEnders, even even the non-Brits listening to this, right? I, I mean, so. defines London just about as much, if not more, than as Burial. <laughs> Absolutely, maybe a slightly yeah, yeah. different era, but yeah. Okay, so Nexus is Dave. Yeah, I'll go first. So. Um, as mentioned, around 2008 Mercury Music Prize time, I, I think it was The Sun thought that the reclusive uh, Mr. Bevan might be Norman Cook, a.k.a. Fatboy Slim. <laughs> uh, Fatboy Slim, his third album featured the track uh, Weapon of Choice, which featured Bootsy Collins on it, but is more famous for its video featuring a uh, Mr. 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 Christopher Walken uh, <laughs> as a businessman and a skyscraper who can fly and I mean it is like a classic one of the best music videos of all time and it was directed by Spike Jones um, who I was going to go down a jackass route but I didn't uh, Christopher Walken appeared in a movie called True Romance directed by Tony Scott written by Quentin Tarantino and also in that movie I think we've talked about it before. It features Gary Oldman as a Rastafarian drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I, I, I think you can... Uh, it was beyond cancelled because I think it was, you know, tongue-in-cheek. But uh, yeah, a great uh, performance from Mr. Oldman. Gary Oldman, born in New Cross, London, age 62, is the brother of Layla Morris, also known as... Mo from EastEnders. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Big okay, Mo yeah, from EastEnders, Mo. or little Big Mo, Big Mo, little Mo. Big Mo the Big Mo, the Big Mo. the one that looks like she would batter you. Um, and uh, Mo Harris in EastEnders is the grandmother of Cat Slayer. Nice. Wow. Nice. I like it. Did not know the Oldman connection. That's interesting. Mark, will I go? Yeah, you go. I, you've got quite a good one. I, I'm not massively impressed with mine. Burial, uh, on the Untrue album, has a lot of interesting samples. Actually, we never mentioned the samples from that, but there's, on Burial by Burial, there's Black Hawk Down, Mothman Prophecies, mm. Ghost Dog, Where the Samurai, and a number of things taken for the film 21 Grams. Um, but on uh, Untrue, it includes a sample of car keys from a Vin Diesel film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, true story, I don't know, he must, have, he must have been watching and going, God damn, that was a good car That's key. That's a great... Um, Vin Diesel and a Mr. Robert De Niro appeared together at a fete for uh, Helen Mirren um, when she received the 45th uh, Charlie Chaplin Award, sort of recognition of her status and contribution to the industry. Uh, Vin Diesel had worked with Helen Mirren, apparently. Uh, Robert De Niro, though, uh, good news for him, according to 50 Cent, Robert De Niro is the same level of actor as Mr. Danny Dyer. <laughs> what? You'll need to explain 50 that. <laughs> 50 Cent was in a film called Dead Man Running with Danny Dyer, and he was blown away by Danny Dyer's versatility and chops and said that Danny Dyer at his best is as good as De Niro. Um, okay, then. <laughs> nice one, Curtis. As, well, well, then. <laughs> I, guess, I mean, that's. 
something Danny else. Dyer uh, played the, car- the character Mick Carter, who was friends with Alfie Moon, and Alfie Moon and Cat Slater and EastEnders were at it all the time, and in fact even had a spin-off series called Cat and Alfie Redwater, which sounds very sinister and was made in uh, collaboration with like RTE or whatever. Um, but yeah, there you go. Gosh. Are you guys ready to have your mind fucking blown? <clears throat> yes, please. Uh, there is a sample from EastEnders in the song Hiders by <laughs> <laughs> What, really? Yeah. Eh? And it is uh, from Whitney Dean, who is one of the characters in EastEnders. Obviously, it uh, was given her first shift at the Vic by Cat Moon. So thank you, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> wow, man. He is uh, also um, on record as saying he's, he, he loves EastEnders. An interview with a wire. He talks about the new. I think this refers to untrue. So the, the interviewer is asking him, let's say, basically saying, I'm really glad you moved in this direction. There's a lot of stuff in it. And he starts talking about how when you're young, things seem kind of much more serious. And then there's some situations where there's no rule book about what you're meant to do. And and, and, and he's kind of segues into saying, I love you, Stenders, and I'll be watching that. And then someone in that, like, for example, Stacey Slater, will just say something that will be like perfect for how I'm feeling. Stacey Slater is also Cat <laughs> Slater's sister, so there you go. <laughs> wow. I, I was on a, I had to go to Burial Reddit, right, to find this, um, but it is literally like, it must be like a three second sample of Stacey Slater, of, of sorry, of Whitney Dean speaking. It's like the <laughs> deepest of deep cuts. <laughs> well done, Mark. That was, that was, that's going to be in the end of the year yeah. list, I think. No mess. Um, cool. Right. We've got something a wee bit special for the listeners next week. Uh, in fact we've already done it yeah. but we're going to release it next week and that's how we know it's special because it was fucking brilliant um, yeah well I'll introduce it uh, yeah go yeah, for it, go for it. Had it, had it. yeah so um, I've been kind of angling for this for a while with the guys we weren't sure if it would be possible but we got an interview uh, with Katie Jane Garside uh, Katie Jane Garside for, for me was best known as the, the front woman of Queen Adrena but also she was in a band called Daisy Chainsaw and she's since done a few other projects uh, she is an incredibly interesting character. Um, the interview was not entirely typical of our usual interviews. We couldn't persuade Katie to pick an album uh, because she doesn't really listen to music, <laughs> which is uh, which is just uh, it's the tip of the iceberg for what turned into like a, a really really enjoyable and uh, very fucking interesting interview. Um, I had a really good time with it, albeit I had no idea what to expect before we did it. So, uh, yep, going to slam that together, and that will be coming out this coming week. And Katie Jane also nominated a Nexus for the, the following week. So, yeah, we're all sorted. Yep, thank you, Katie Jane. And, yeah, looking forward to that, because that, uh, that was a good chat. So it was a good fun time. Um, I'm also glad that I've brought an album to you that neither of you have shat on so thanks <laughs> I've had a, I've had a week where I was just expecting shat well David if you would stop bringing shit up stop <laughs> shitting on them right um, but okay cool well we'll rendezvous here next week for Katie Jane Garside alright bye bye folks bye